Good morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, that is our very prayer this morning, that the gospel's truth may resound on earth so that all living things may hear it. We pray that the words we share would be your grace and your peace. May our tongues speak your proclamations and yours alone so that the many parts of the body of Christ may be affirmed in their right relations. And give us the power to do these things with the hope, the glorious blessed hope of the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ, that we may gather together and be with all of your people in one place, never ever ceasing to praise you. We pray this morning that your word would be proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. My name is Brian. I like to ride my motorcycle. I like to eat my wife's food, well, most of it. There's a few things that she likes that I don't. I love to spend time with my family, but above all, I love to preach the word, and I hope that that will be what happens here this morning. I love to have friends and I'm going to call them Kendall and Aaron because that's how I know them. You might know them as Pastor Harris and Pastor Armstrong, but uh, these men who love the Lord, and I'm sure I know that they love you. When our pastor's group meets together uh, every month, uh, we share requests about our congregations, and these men love you and pray for you and care for you, and I know they will continue to do so. And may the Lord grant you the grace to love them and care for them, submitting to them because they watch over your souls. Normally, I'm the type of person, pastor, who likes to do just what your pastor is doing now. He's picked a book of the Bible, and he's preaching through it week after week, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, explaining the text and calling on the people of God, you, to hear the proclamation of Christ in all the Scripture. Since I'm not your pastor, I get to take a little bit of liberty today and not be married to one text, although I could very easily do that. We pastors are known at times to focus on one word, right? Maybe even one letter at times. Today, my text is the whole Bible, and he's given me till about two (laughs) o'clock to accomplish this. I'd like to take you on a trip through the Bible to remind you of the importance of the Word of God. Today we'll see a bigger picture, and it's good to step back at times and uh, from those individual texts and put them together and see the grand scheme of what God is doing. I hope this will be an encouragement to your soul. I preach from my iPad, and it doesn't have a leather cover, and it slides down. I want you to see the word of the Lord accomplishing in its work. If you would, open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 55. In this text, we read a promise that God has made to his people through the prophet. If I would have known the front of the pulpit says he has promised, I probably would have titled that my sermon, my, titled my sermon that today. We read a promise that God made to his people through the prophet. It says this, As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven 
and do not return there to the heaven, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So rather than preach this text, I want to show you throughout the scripture how that is what God has always been doing, is doing, and what he will always do. And lest this become simply an academic exercise, I'm driving toward a specific encouragement that is meant to build you up in the most holy faith and motivate you to holy living. So strap on your seatbelts, loosen up your fingers if you like to turn in your pages, get your pen ink flowing if you like to write down references. Here we go. And we'll start in Genesis 1, where we find the account of creation. I'll take the risk of explaining a few things that your pastor has already preached in his current sermon series. I, being a pastor, I know what it's like to have a visiting pastor come in and preach the text that you just preached. And you're thinking, oh, is he going to get it right? <laughs> I'm confident that we are united in these things. We spend a lot of time looking at the creation account in order to prove certain things, such as the order of creation, the male-female distinction, the purpose of the creation, the methods of creation, whether it was six literal days or six periods of time, or whether everything was created all at once or simply put into motion. It's important and helpful to study all of those distinctions and to come to conclusions as we do so. I'm not intending to discredit those studies by any means. I have my own conclusions about them, as I'm sure many, if not all of you, do. But it seems that there's a really important purpose for the creation account and its location in the Bible. In this consider of the text today, we want to consider particularly, or understand particularly, how God created the world and all that is in it. And we find that God spoke and all things came into existence. His very words created what he said. The very words of God produce outcomes. When he speak, when he speaks, what he says causes what he said to happen. Out of nothing, God made everything by simply speaking. When God said, let there be, there was. And it was exactly as he said it and planned it. God's command causes what he wills to happen. His word is power. His words don't take on power because they become true or they take place. They are true when he says them, and they are power and powerful when they are spoken. It doesn't take long in the account of creation to find this to be the case. In verse 3 of the Bible we find this. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Already at the beginning of the Bible, this is happening. In the big picture of the Bible, 
this is the purpose of the creation story. God gives us the combination that unlocks the rest of the scripture right here in the beginning of the book. It's almost as if he wants us to see how everything is going to work out. And indeed, he does want us to see that he is the one working to accomplish his purposes, his purpose. God says, and that happens. And then God records it for us to remind us that is what happened. He's gracious to cause things to happen and gracious to record them so we don't forget them and so that we have the constant reminder of what he has done. Then we find the fall of man in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are deceived by the devil and they choose evil rather than good. And while this may seem to thwart God's plan, we actually find that he has ordained that he would restore his people to the purpose for which he created them. When God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, after they've sinned, and after he has sought them out and spoken to them, he speaks to them again. He curses the devil and that curse will be forever. There's no relenting of it. And there will be enmity between the devil and the offspring of the woman. And God makes a promise to the devil and to the whole world. The seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent, while the serpent will only be able to strike the heel of Jesus. This is God's promise spoken to the devil, but meant to be the encouragement of the people of God, the hope of all of God's people. God will crush, Jesus will crush, the one who deceives us. He will crush the one whose words are meant to mislead and harm us. He will crush the one who lives in every way opposite to God's word. He will be victorious in the battle, and God's people will thus have victory, not in themselves, but in him. This is the overarching promise of God throughout the Bible. It was given, spoken in words, to Adam and Eve and the devil in the garden, and it culminates at the cross of Jesus Christ. All through the Old Testament, the people of God knew this would happen because God had promised it. And God's promise always comes true. His word always is true. Many times, the people of God failed to believe. Just as Pastor Armstrong mentioned this morning in the confession that God sees that we are but dust He knows our feeble frames and that we fail him. We fail to believe his word. And yet, God keeps his promise. Many times we fail to believe, but God keeps his word. So in the fall, the first Adam, the one who was supposed to carry out the command of God, failed to keep mankind in the favor of God. And God promises to restore them. Man's sin hangs with him throughout his lifetime. The corruption of the flesh continues on until the day Jesus returns. And it seems that we will lose or mar the effectiveness of the promise of God. But God's promise, his word, 
is never marred nor hindered by human sinfulness. God keeps his promise. At the end of Genesis 4, we find that the people began to call on the name of the Lord. The seed of the woman had not yet crushed the serpent. One of those sons had already died. Another son has a grandson. It seems that God had forgotten or gone back on his promise. It seemed that maybe God was changing his mind about this whole restoration thing and crushing the serpent. But he had not. Though it seemed that way, he had not forgotten or forsaken his promise. He was teaching his people that his promises are true even though they did not come to pass in their lifetime. So already we are seeing that God is working on a grander scheme than we could ever imagine or think. The next stop in our trip through the scripture brings us to Genesis 6, where God promises Noah that he will flood the earth, but also that he will preserve Noah and his family. After the flood, God promises to never destroy the earth by flood again and gives a symbol, a reminder of the promise with the rainbow. Every time we see a rainbow, it reminds us that no matter how severe the storm, God has kept his promise. No matter the sinfulness of man and its magnitude, God has kept his promise. This is a general promise, this promise to Noah, to the world that continues until this last day. God will deal kindly with the world and with forbearance until that final judgment. But at the final judgment, the judgment will be worse than the flood. In both Genesis 1, 28 and chapter 9, verse 1, we are told that God blessed both Adam and Eve as well as Noah and his sons. The blessing came in the form of a command. Consider Genesis 1, 28. Then God blessed them and said to them, so his blessing comes in this command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And to Noah in chapter 9 verse 1, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said this command to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is really important. God first blesses them, placing them in covenant with himself, and the blessing is a command. Why so important? Well, remember, when God commands, he causes it to happen. His command is power. His word is powerful and accomplishes what he wills. The very command that God gives is what enables us to carry out his commands. We move forward in the big story to a place called Babel in Genesis 11. Here we find that the descendants of Noah and his sons did not carry out God's command. They have not spread across the earth as God has commanded them. Instead, they are building a city that has their name and their glory written all over it. 
What a pitiful city that must have been to have our name and our glory on it. So God comes down to them and confuses their language, causing them to spread out across the earth. Once again, God commands and he accomplishes. When left up to mankind, failure is the only outcome. God must ensure that his commands are carried out. This confusion of languages continues as a means of preventing them from coming together again. They're spread across the world because of this. But as we'll see later in the scripture, and I forgot to put this in the rest of my sermon, so we'll have to see it now. I just realized this. As you can see later in the scripture, this is symbolically reversed in the New Testament when we come to Pentecost. When the languages, as the, the disciples would preach, the apostles would preach, the people would hear them in their own language. God bringing his people together and once again making his word known. His causing them to hear and see and understand his word. Well, moving forward yet again, we come to the word of God given to Abraham in Genesis 12. God calls Abraham out of his idol worship in a far country and, ex- and instructs Abraham to, or excuse me, Abram, to go out of his country to a country that is not his. He promises Abram that in this land, God will make of him a great nation. He will bless him. He will make him great in order that Abram will be a blessing to the world. In fact, God blesses those who bless Abram and curses those who curse him and promises that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in, through him. We find that Abram and his wife Sarah are very old. So old, they are beyond the time of life where they can have children. And once again, it seems that God has forgotten his promise. Abraham attempts to take things into his own hands. He doesn't trust the promise of God, and he tries to have a son with one of his servants. But God tells him that is not the son through whom God's promise would be fulfilled. God's promise is that Abraham and Sarah would have a son even in their old age, and they do. Isaac is born at the time when God said it would happen, and the way God said it would happen. All those years of waiting to see what God would do, would God keep his promise? Yes, he would. This trained or discipled or disciplined Abraham for future service in God's plan. When God told him to take this son, the one God had promised, the only son of the promise, and kill him as a sacrifice to God, Abraham is confused, but he trusts God. He even says to his son when Isaac asks about the lamb for the sacrifice, what I think is the key phrase of the whole Bible, God will provide himself a sacrifice, or God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And these are, of course, meant by the Holy Spirit to speak not just of the animal God provided on the mountain that day, but also of the perfect Lamb of God, the Savior, Jesus, who would be sacrificed, the only Son 
who would be sacrificed for our sin. Abraham trusted God that day, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul tells us that later on, right? God was making sure that his promise was carried out. He was working in Abraham to do what he wanted done, what God wanted done. The promise to Adam and Eve had been passed down from generation to generation. The people of God were waiting for the son who had crushed the serpent and restore them to God. But Isaac was not that one. He was in the line, but he was not the son promised in Genesis 3. Over 400 years later, which amount of time was promised by God, we find the Israelites as a very large nation in slavery in Egypt. God's promise is fulfilled to make Abraham into a large nation. Abraham never saw that fulfillment, but it did take place. Now Moses is on the scene, and as he's out in the wilderness tending the flocks of his father-in-law, the Lord speaks to him from a bush that is burning yet not consumed. He instructs Moses to go to Egypt, for God is going to do something great. He's going to rescue his people and bring them to the land that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that land that Joseph made his family swear they would take his bones to. He believed God that much that he said, take my bones there when, I, when you go. Moses questions God, knowing that in Egypt there's a warrant out for his arrest due to his murdering an Egyptian. But God gives Moses a promise in Exodus 3 verse 12. I will certainly be with you And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God or worship God right here on this mountain, the mountain where God is speaking to him from the burning bush. Not only did God promise to be with Moses in Egypt, thus protecting and enabling him to do that which God was commanding him, but God also promised an outcome Moses and the Israelites would worship God right there. Without getting into the fact that God promised what Pharaoh would do and not do, more promises that God fulfilled, we come to Genesis 19 and find that God kept his word again. Here's another short-term example of God keeping his word so that his people will remember that he has not forgotten the promise to crush the serpent and restore his people to himself. I believe that should be Exodus 19. But notice this. God has made this overarching promise, and to support that, even though that has not come true in their lifetime, he's giving them these smaller, we call them smaller, but they're great promises, right? These smaller promises to show that he's keeping his word that they don't see happening just yet. In Exodus 20, we find that as they are at Mount Sinai, where God promised they would be, he gives them the commandments. And really, so much of the rest of the Pentateuch is filled with the law of God. But an important phrase is often overlooked in chapter 20, Exodus 20, verse 24. God tells them, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. When God causes his word to be remembered, 
then he blesses us. He blesses us. He warns them that they will forget his name. There's another saying on that table down there. Do this in remembrance of me. We forget day by day and week by week what God is doing, what God has promised. And we need this supper to remind us that God has kept his promise and he will keep his promises. We forget. And he warns us, he warns them that they will forget. Now that's an interesting change in our terminology, but it's explained in Psalm 138.2, the last half of the verse, where David says to the Lord, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's a tricky verse to translate, I understand. Both Luther and Calvin translate it as being something like, you have exalted your name above your word, or you have exalted your name and your word. Suffice it to say that the word and name of God are inextricably linked. God is responsible for the fame of his name and the carrying out of his word as the means for that fame. Later on, Paul tells us in the New Testament, the law was not given to restore the people to God, but given to the people to show them what was required to stay in the covenant. It was, re- it was given to reveal that they could not actually do that. It was given to reveal their sinfulness. The whole story of Israel follows this pattern. They were blessed by God, brought into covenant by him. They disobeyed and ignored him. They were cast into captivity by him. They were rescued by him. They were restored by him. All of this, God's blessing on them. Though they failed at abiding in the covenant, God is and was doing what must be done to make sure his promise is fulfilled to bless all the nations and crush the head of the serpent by the seed of Eve through the line of Adam. Once again, God has taught his people to trust them in their own circumstances and their own situations as a means of teaching them to trust him for the fulfillment of the bigger promise. After Moses is off the scene, God appoints Joshua as the leader to bring the people into the land of promise. And God goes before them, fighting their battles, causing them to win the victory. He was causing them to do what he willed to be done. And in all of this, God has given them glimpses of what the future will be when Jesus reigns and the enemies of the soul are defeated and put to death. He gives them smaller temporal promises to teach them to believe and enable them to believe. So they are able to continue trusting his promise to crush the head of the serpent with the seed of the woman. In this law given at Mount Sinai, provision is made for a priest someone to be an intermediary between God and man. This is a picture or foreshadowing of the great high priest who would enter the temple not made with hands to present his own righteousness on behalf of the people of God. Our next stop in this Bible overview brings us to King David. We'll skip over a lot of David's life and focus on one event 
found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, where God promises David this. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will do this, God says. His promise rests on him and what he is doing. The promise of a king was not an additional promise so much it was so much as it was an expansion of the promises God had already made. This son was David's actual son, no doubt. Solomon would build the temple and lead the people, but this was not the ultimate purpose for preserving the kingship through David's line. This would ultimately be the line of the Messiah, Christ. The line through which Jesus would be born. Jesus would not just be a prophet and a priest. He would also be the king. He would rule as God over his people. Of course, God causes so many things to happen during David's rule that are rather picturesque of what will happen in the centuries to come and are still going on now. But the city of God on a hill with a river flowing down from it, symbolic of God's blessing coming from his holy mountain where Jesus sits enthroned and is a blessing to every nation. In this promise to David, God promises to continue the line of blessing through David's physical line. And though so many of the kings failed, just read First and Second Kings and Chronicles, though so many of these kings failed, God continues to orchestrate the carrying out of his promises in the way he said he would do so. Are you seeing the big picture yet? I've only said it a few times, right? Repetition aids memory, hopefully. Let me point it out to you in case you're missing it. God promised to crush the devil with the seed of the woman. Generation after generation after generation, that had not taken place. But God had not forgotten his promise. And to bring his people along and enable them to trust his promise. He has given them several other underlying promises to make sure they have reason to believe him along the way. It is God's promise that gives his people hope. He has made sure that they trust him. He has kept his promises to this point. And that is evidence that he will keep his ultimate promise. We skipped a lot of history between Moses and David, but if you go back and read that section of the Bible, you'll find that God is making his word known to his people. As the people of his kingdom disobey, God sends them into exile, and while, he, while in exile, he sends them the prophets to remind them of what? Of God's word. And to proclaim to them that God is still planning to restore them, even though they're in exile. In that great text in Genesis, or Jeremiah 29, 11-14, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not harm you. Those were, that promise was made while they were in exile and still would be in exile for another 70 years. If you have that on your Bible cover, that's great, but just remember 
could be a long time before you experience that, right? But this is God's promise. He will do this. The promises depend on God, not the people. God is constantly pointing his people forward to what he is doing and what he is going to do by constantly showing them what he is doing now. He promises restoration not because of what they do or how they act, but solely because he must keep his promise. Eventually, the whole nation is abandoned in exile, and yet another 400 years of silence commences. It seems once again that God has forgotten his promise or that he has decided not to keep it. But at last, at last, we come to the fulfillment of all of these promises of God. And we find it in the New Testament through the God-made man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the last Adam, where the first Adam in Genesis failed to resist the tempter and fulfill the desires of God. Jesus, the last Adam, is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. God's promise is fulfilled. Jesus reverses the outcome of sin in the Garden of Eden. Rather than being cast out because of our sin, now we are brought near by the blood of the one who was victorious over sin and death and the grave. Instead of being covered by the insufficient blood and skins of animals, we are now covered in the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, dressed in his robes of righteousness. And someday we will take on that new body that is like his glorious, perfect body. In and through Jesus, God has justified us. And I'm sure you know what that word means. Justification. But indulge me for just a moment to draw this out a bit. Justification is the declaration of God that we are righteous. Did you hear that? It is the declaration of God. It is what he says about us. It is what he causes us to be by saying so. Just as his words created all things, his words create life in us and make us to be his people. Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous. It is the removal of sin. That which caused us to be born dead and separated from God, alienated from him, has now been removed. Sin is forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. But Jesus is to be remembered. But that's only part of what happens when God justifies us. To be made righteous, sin must be removed, but righteousness must be given as well. Not only are we brought to a zero balance, but we are given the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Paul says we are made the righteousness of Christ. We have an infinite unending amount of righteousness that can never be spent. 
When we are righteous, we live righteously. Jesus is still righteous. It goes on and on and on. And when we sin, God still looks at us covered in the blood, given the perfect righteousness of Christ. We live in righteousness. We don't earn it. We live in it. We don't maintain it. We live in it. The life of Christ has caused us to live. So God has justified us. He has declared us righteous in Christ. He has willed by his word that we be justified. And because he said it, nothing can stop it from happening and nothing can take it away. This is why I've drawn out so many of these Old Testament events this morning. It is so important to understand the Old Testament when it says that God spoke and things happened. Even if they happened centuries or millennia later, God kept his word. He fulfilled his promise. And now all the nations are blessed, as was promised to Abraham. We should note, however, that it's not just Israel in the Old Testament who is blessed. The Gentiles also in the Old Testament had to wait. The Gentiles did not have to wait until Jesus came to be blessed. We read of the Egyptians who left with the Israelites. We read of Rahab and Ruth, both outsiders, but who hold prominent roles in the genealogy of the Messiah who was promised. So many other examples of Gentiles being blessed in the Old Testament abound. But we see in this that God was blessing all the nations even before Jesus came to the earth. Now we come to Pentecost. I did put it in here. Now we come to Pentecost in the book of Acts. There in Jerusalem, God reverses the dividing wall of Babel and makes all the people understand the proclamation of Christ in their own language. God is causing his people to be drawn back together again. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is recognized as the promised prophet, the promised priest, the promised king. John 1, 1 through 18, he was the word made flesh who dwelt among us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, he was the supreme self-revelation of God who at earlier times had spoken through the prophets, but now has spoken to us in his son, in the flesh. Jesus, the superior prophet. He's also the superior priest. A large portion of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is the superior, great high priest. Even now, he is interceding for us, pleading his righteousness on our behalf, consecrating or sanctifying us, setting us apart unto himself. This was, of course, pictured by the Old Testament priests. And Jesus is the superior king, the promised king who would rule over sin and death and rule in, not not just over, but rule in his people. This is pictured by David and the steadfast line of kingship in his family culminating in Jesus, the son of David, born of the tribe of Judah. So where does all of this leave us now? 
Why all of this talk about the promise of God? What does this mean to us? And what is the purpose in exploring this bigger picture of the scripture? My goal is to show you that God will keep his promise. He will accomplish what he said he would do. He has fulfilled his promises thus far as the sign to us that he will continue to do so. And that leaves us with this question. What has God promised us? What has God promised his people who are alive right here, right now? Because Jesus is God in the flesh, The promises that Jesus gave us are equal to being from God himself. In John 14, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you all. And if I go and prepare a place for you all, I will come again and receive you all to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. An important note here, we don't each get an individual mansion in heaven or in this in eternally. The point of what Jesus is saying is that there is plenty of room for all of his people. He even says, I go to prepare a singular place for the plural you. He's preparing a singular place for us, his people. Instead of separating his people into factions and groups, he's bringing them together through Christ Jesus. This is the reason we see the return from the exile in the Old Testament. This is why we see the church started in the New Testament at Pentecost with the languages being restored. God is constantly bringing his people to himself, drawing them to him and setting them apart for himself. So this promise of Jesus is future. All of his people will be restored to fellowship with him in his presence because he declared it. It must come to pass. You can bank on it. In John 14, 25 and 26, we see the pattern carried out. When God gave promises in the Old Testament that did not come to pass in the lifetime of the person to whom he made them, he often made these temporary or immediate promises to maintain faith in his people. All of those promises came true, right? So Jesus gave us an immediately fulfilled promise. He said this, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He promised and fulfilled the promise to send us the Spirit For what purpose? To remind us what God said when he was in the flesh. The Spirit 
teaches us all things, reminds us what Jesus said. Not only does God give his promise, he reminds us of it, and he keeps it. So we come now to Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. When God speaks, his word is powerful, and it accomplishes his pleasure. It always has, it always will, and it is right now. Paul repeats this thought in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What is gospel? The gospel is good news. And how is news given? It's spoken. The word of God, the very promise of God, is power for us to the Jew and the Greek. The proclamation of this message, the good news that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the serpent and restore his people to himself. The proclamation of this message is powerful. It is piercing to the joints and marrows of our soul. We can take comfort that God will accomplish his purpose. What God commands will come to fruition, and he does this despite our failings in the flesh. Are you weary? Are you heavy-hearted? Listen to Jesus. Believe Jesus. Are you sinning? Are you weak and frail? Listen to Jesus. Believe Jesus. Are you feeling great? Are you feeling strong? Listen to Jesus and believe Jesus. Hear this powerful message anew. You are justified in Christ Jesus. It is this message that motivates and empowers us to live holy lives. Holiness is not manufactured by us. Holiness is formed in us by the powerful message of God's word, his gospel. And that is good news. That is the gospel at work in us. Dear people of God, trust the word of the Lord. Devote yourselves to it. Spend your days reminding others and proclaiming it to others. Your fellow believers need to hear the good news of Jesus over and over and over and over and over at Bible study on Monday night, and at lunch on Thursday afternoon, and at prayer time on Wednesday night, and on Sunday morning in the message, and after the message on Sunday morning, all the time we need to hear this good news of gospel over and over. So believe, trust God. This is the message of scripture to you. Trust him. Depend on him to do what he pleases. Find comfort in this. This is not an allowance for laziness, far from it. This is not permission to live however you want, far, far from it. May it never be. This is a call and reminder to live by faith. 
We walk by faith and not by sight. Whatever is not done in faith is sin. God's word has made all things, sustained all things, has justified you, sanctifies you, and ultimately will be fulfilled when he fully glorifies you. Our Father in heaven, you certainly have done great things. We look throughout history and we see the glorious work that you have accomplished. You have kept your word. We praise you for this. We praise you that you promised. We praise you that you keep your promise. We praise you that you empower us by doing so. May we never forget. May we never take the glory unto ourselves, but always, always say, to God be glory. Great things he has done. And may that encourage us and motivate us and empower us to live because we know that your promise that is yet to be fulfilled of glorifying us and giving us new bodies and raising us from the dead to be caught up in the air with Christ Jesus and to ever be with you, that we might be with you. That promise is yet to be fulfilled and we look forward to that day. We trust no matter what happens in this life that you will keep your word. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.